1: Love getting a chance to talk about the report, and that's—it's awesome to hear that feedback because I can tell you, we we spend months and months and months going, you know, putting this together, putting our survey out, combing through the data. We we really spend a lot of time trying to make this thing useful uh, to members, to practitioners. So it's it's good to hear that somebody's getting some use out of it because you know that's what it's here for. Yeah, uh, I'm the Vice President General Counsel of the ACFE.
0: That was John Warren. Vice President General Counsel of the ACFE. John returns to talk about the ACFE's 2022 Report to the Nations on International Fraud. It's an important topic. It's an important report. I know you'll enjoy it. Hope you'll check out the latest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, the Woody Report, where I host Professor Karen Woody, who talks about securities law and all things SEC. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And frankly, I'm thrilled to have back with me John Warren. Uh, John's with the ACFE, and we're here to talk about the 2022 Report to the Nations. Uh, I always enjoy these conversations, John. I will tell you as a practitioner, this is a fabulous report you guys put out. I use it throughout the year. I use it for a variety of reasons. And uh, I was on a, a virtual conference in the Far East yesterday, and I was able to use information from the report. so uh, it's it's so comprehensive and uh, it provides so much information. I just wanted to acknowledge you and the ACFE for the great work you do and this report.
1: Thanks, Tom. I, I first of all, happy to be here. Um, love getting a chance to talk about the report. and that's it's awesome to hear that feedback because I can tell you we we spend months and months and months going, you know, putting this together putting our survey out, combing through the data. We, we really spend a lot of time trying to make this thing useful uh, to members, to practitioners, so it's, it's good to hear that somebody's getting some use out of it because, you know, that's what it's here for.
0: So before we get into the report itself, can uh, you remind us all what your role is at the ACFE?
1: Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm the vice president and general counsel of the ACFE, which means I basically handle all the organization's legal work, and, and I work with our board of regents and our, our foundation board. But I'm one of the old timers here. I started about 26 years ago, and I I started my first project at the ACFE. was working on the the report to the nations that came out in 1996, the data from that, and so I transitioned over full time to legal years and years ago. But I've always kept the report because it's it was one of the first things I I worked on, and I I really love digging into the data and stuff. So this is our this is our twelfth edition of it, and I've been involved with all of them, and um, it's grown a lot over the years.
0: So I, I had always wondered about the title of the report the report to the nations until I went to my first ACFE conference, which incidentally, or ironically enough, was in Austin when I saw the flag parade, for lack of a better term, of the nations. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that part of the ACFE, why you keep that sort of organizational structure, and frankly, why it's so powerful
1: yeah, so um, we and, and what's interesting is originally it was called the Report to the Nation back in the '90s when we were mostly a U.S.-based organization. But over the years, we have really grown internationally, um, and I think it's just because fraud is a global threat. You know, the the issues that an an investigator, an anti-fraud person, in Houston or Chicago or New York has is largely the same as somebody in London or Jakarta or, or, you know, Rio de Janeiro. And so over the years, the report has grown and we started getting more feedback from our international members. So we've got in this uh, report, we've got cases from 133 different countries. They're submitted to us by CFEs um, from around the world. And it really is, it really kind of underscores the global nature of the problem and also how similar these frauds are really no matter where you're seeing them. So there's kind of universal messages that I think people can take no matter where they're, where they're getting the, uh, the report at.
0: Maybe I could step back and even ask you about an acronym you use CFE. What's a CFE and how does a CFE work?
1: Yeah, so a CFE is a certified fraud examiner and we are the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And what we are is a membership organization we're the largest anti-fraud organization in the world. We've got about 90,000 members, a uh, little over 91,000 actually now, who operate in about 180 countries around the world. And the common denominator for all of those members is they do anti-fraud work. So that can be investigation. It can be compliance. It can be law enforcement. We have members in government, nonprofit sector, public, private, big companies, small companies. But that's the common denominator. They're all working day in, day out to prevent or detect or investigate fraud, corruption, and other kinds of white-collar crime.
0: So you touched on this uh, in your introductory remarks, but what is the report? How is it compiled? And then how do you guys really take that information and reformat it into a, a visual and written document that people like myself and everyone else consumes?
1: Sure. Yeah, so the report is a study of fraud cases. So, And this is one thing that um, differentiates itself from, from some other studies. Uh, a lot of uh, people will try to look at, like, you know, how much fraud does organization X have or how much does organization Y have? We don't look at companies or organizations. We look at fraud cases because what we're trying to do is drill down into the specific mechanics of how a fraud works. So we have a survey that's made up of about 77 questions, and it goes out to CFEs every two years, certified fraud examiners around the world, and we say, give us information on one case you've investigated within, you know, roughly an 18-month time frame, and we're gonna ask you about, and we don't ask for names, we don't want to know who the company was or who the the name of the perpetrator. What we wanna know is how did they commit the fraud? What was the method? We want to know how it got caught. We want to know how much it cost. We want to know who the perpetrator or what the perpetrator's characteristics were. You know, what what did they look like? What did the uh, victim look like? What kind of controls did the victim have? How big was the victim? Where, where, Where was it located? And we want to know how that organization responded after the fraud was detected. So, you know, it's method, perpetrator, victim, cost, How is it caught and what did they do? And then we take all that data from these thousands of cases that our members provide to us free, you know, they devote their time, they give their time to give us this information, and we compile it into a report that summarizes all this so that people in the anti fraud industry can benchmark what's the most likely fraud I'm going to see if I'm in healthcare or if I'm in banking or what is a fraud cost in my sector or if I'm in Western Europe, what what is a typical median fraud uh, fraud loss for a case in Western Europe? Or which of my employees are higher risk? Is it the executive or the staff level person? Is it accounting or is it HR? And basically we've got about a hundred page, ninety some hundred pages of data that is entirely designed to help CFEs and other anti-fraud people understand what their fraud risk is and do a better job of preventing and detecting those, uh, those crimes.
0: Uh, let's go into some of the key findings from this year. What were uh, uh, the top ones uh, either in your mind or things that perhaps even surprised you a little bit?
1: Yeah, so there's always a lot. One of, the, one of the big things is always just the cost. You know, fraud is an enormous problem for organizations. Our members estimate about 5% of revenue. Is lost every year to fraud from organizations. Which, if you if you multiply that out globally against um, gross world product, you're talking in the trillions of dollars. We we put a number on it about 4.7 trillion. That's kind of an estimate, but regardless, we're we're talking trillions of dollars. Businesses are losing to fraud every year, and that is money that ought to be spent on salary on developing new products. If you're a government, it ought to be spent on infrastructure and providing services, or if you're a nonprofit, it ought to be spent on charitable work. Instead, it's going in the pockets of criminals. So it's an enormous, enormous problem, and and I think the report underscores that. Um, Some just basic key findings. Typical fraud case, the median loss is about $117,000 per incident of fraud. So that's not per company. That's just one fraud case. Typically going to run about $117,000 typically takes about, um, they'll usually last about a year before they get detected. One of the interesting things we did this year, though, which we have not done in the past, is we did some looking at fraud trends over the past decade. Because one of the other things I should mention, we do this report every two years. As I think I said this is our 12th edition. So this year, we decided to look back and see how's, how's fraud changed over the last 10 years. And one of the really interesting things we found is that Occupational frauds are being detected more quickly now than they were a decade ago. As I said, the typical fraud case this year lasted about 12 months before it was detected. 10 years ago, that was 18 months. Even though losses are still really large, what we see there is a really encouraging sign that what the work anti-fraud professionals do is working. We're raising awareness about fraud risk. We're getting better at developing controls. And so we're better able to catch these things. Um, Because we're catching them faster, typical losses have gone down a little bit. It used to be $140,000 per fraud 10 years ago. Now it was 117 dollars So we've got a long way to go, um, but we are making progress. And there's some tangible evidence of that in the report. And that was really exciting. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and then more from John Warren. So let me just pick up on that last point on detection. Um, we've
0: had really, I think, over the past, certainly the last 10 years, maybe even less, a great number of increases in whistleblower reports. Mm-hmm. Some of it was driven by regulators, such as the SEC, putting in a whistleblower bounty program. Some of it was driven by the Me Too movement and social media, giving people a, a forum to step forward. And some of it was corporations really investing in whistleblower programs, but more importantly, uh, a creating a culture of trust and a speak-up culture. Uh, do you see the whistleblower component, the hotline component, speak-up component as something that's uh, helping to drive detection as well?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we do this study every two years, as I said. And one of the key things we look at is how do frauds get detected? And and we, you know, everybody who fills out the form, the survey, we ask them, how was it initially caught? What was the first thing that led you to uncover this fraud? And Every time we do this, the number one response by a mile is tips. So in this current study, 42% of all the frauds we looked at were caught by tip. Number two was internal audit, and that was 16%. So tip is almost three times as common as the number two detection method. And what that tells us is if you want to have an effective fraud detection program, if you want to be serious about catching fraud, You've got to work to facilitate tips from your employees because your audit team, your fraud investigation team, whatever, they can't be everywhere within your organization all the time. But the people who are committing these crimes, people around them, I always say someone almost always either knows or suspects. And so what it becomes is a question of, are they going to tell anybody? And there's a lot that goes into that, right? There's there concerns about accusing somebody who's not, you know, and and it turns out you're wrong. So people are afraid to do that. There's concerns about I make a tip and somebody's going to retaliate against me. So I, I, you know, maybe I won't make a tip because of that. There's a concern about being perceived as a snitch or a rat. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to like make, you know, blow the whistle because of that. So as an organization, I think we've got to work hard to overcome all those obstacles. So That means having a hotline, publicizing it, telling people how to do it, reinforcing why it's important to do it, right? Millions of dollars are going out of companies all over the world every year because of fraud. If, you know, that's money, again, that ought to be spent on raises, it ought to be spent on hiring. If you reinforce that to employees, you make them feel better about coming forward when they have a suspicion. And then you got to follow up on it. You got to be transparent. You got to let them know that you did something because- it's a hard thing to make a to blow the whistle. And if somebody does it and they don't see a response, you know, then they're gonna be like, well, I'm not gonna do it the next time. And maybe they're gonna tell the people around them, well, you know, I, I reported this and nothing happened. I guess they don't follow up on it. And that affects your culture, that affects the way employees view the integrity of your organization. So it's really important, I think, to focus on tips, but make it part of a broader strategy of training people educating people telling them what fraud looks like we have uh, this is a little off the topic of what you asked me but we have a lot of data in this report about behavioral red flags what is a when a person's committing fraud they will have a lot of clues they'll give up like they'll be living beyond their means right like so the typical example would be somebody who makes forty thousand dollars a year driving new mercedes to work one day and like well how did that happen you can educate your people. We see the same red flags, the same behavioral clues pop up over and over again in these cases. So that's a part of your education is is teaching your employees what to look for, so that if they're unsure but they think, you know, the guy in accounting maybe isn't doing something right, and then they can layer that with also, oh, by the way, he's taking a vacation to the Bahamas three times a year and he bought a vacation home there. Then maybe that maybe that information. Let's them make a phone call or let's them submit a complaint and say, Hey, I just think you should take a, take a look at this. And, and that's how fraud detection begins. Uh,
0: so you said a lot in there. Let me just pick up on some of the points. Um, and as you know, uh, many of my listeners are in anti bribery, anti corruption compliance. And I'm even going to try and tie some of your thoughts uh, to that. But you started off with describing something I'm going to say is the business case the business case for fraud prevention. And you started off with this basic as basic as it gets. Hey, guys, if the, this money goes out the door, it's less in salaries. It's less in R&D. It's less to the shareholders. It's less spending in the local community. So you really articulated a business case for fraud prevention, not simply fraud detection. And so I wanted to use that to maybe uh, talk about prevention, and uh, you you ticked off many of the things that can be used in the detection system, but it also strikes me that by talking about that to employees, by talking about robust internal controls, by talking about a speak-up culture, that actually moves to a prevention component as well, because it may stop people who are in the middle of halfway through the fraud triangle or something like that.
1: That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, all of this ties together, right? You know, One of the things we talk about in um, the anti-fraud field is the perception of detection, right? If somebody thinks they're going to get caught, if they think the company's looking, if they think the company has robust controls, if they see that someone else got caught, you know, running fake invoices through the payable system, then they're less likely to try and do it themselves. So that's one key component of prevention. And um, but the other thing I want to highlight, because you talked about making a business case. There's a section in the report where we look at um, the the controls that the victim organization, that's the organization that got defrauded. We have a list of 18 common anti-fraud controls, and it can be, did you have a hotline? Did you have a fraud policy? Did you have independent audits of your financial statements? You know, there's a whole, it runs the gamut. But when we do the survey, one of the things we ask our CFEs is, Which of these controls, if any, did the victim have at the time the fraud was going on, right? So did you have a hotline while you were being defrauded? Did you have, you know, anti-fraud policy, whatever. And then we take all the cases and we break them into two batches, those that did and those that didn't. And we run the numbers on losses. And so, for example, if you had a hotline, if if your company was having a fraud and you had a hotline at your company, your median loss was $100,000. That's what the fraud cost you. If you had a fraud at your company and you didn't have a hotline, your median loss was $200,000. The fraud cost you twice as much because you didn't have a hotline, right? And we do that analysis for all 18 controls, and every one of them shows a correlation with lower losses, which means for for. Your listeners, if you're going to management or you're going to a client and you're making the case for we need to invest in anti-fraud controls, we need to invest in staff, whatever, you can go to the reports of the nation. You can find statistical data that shows that when you put money into an anti-fraud program, if you invest in a hotline or you have an internal audit department, you see real savings in fraud losses. And I think that's really important um, because it can be hard To make that case to managers or executives who maybe don't have a high degree of fraud awareness, right? It's hard to make the case that I'm gonna spend this money and our savings are going to be frauds that don't occur, right? So that doesn't it doesn't it's not like money coming in, but what you're doing is preventing money from going out, and, and that's one of the goals of the report is to help show how that happens.
0: As much as you and I might like to think that massive frauds perpetrated by one person don't occur anymore, uh, I'm going to bring up a couple. And the first is Rita Crundwell, uh, who was, I believe, an Iowa, a state of Iowa city employee who stole over $100 million. And we all not just simply rolled our eyes when that happened, but we're, we're probably pretty shocked that someone could get away with that. And that it would never happen again until, of course, it happened again. And even this year, we had Jamie Patrone at Yale, who stole over $40 million from one of the U.S.'s most prestigious institutes in, frankly, as basic a fraud is, as you can have, having uh, spent um, monies just under the amount that would be um, detected or at least reviewed by uh, her next level of management. And how, I guess I'm still amazed that we could have these massive frauds. But in both cases, both of those persons were relatively open about how they spent that money. Uh, Rita Cundwell was on a national horse owners magazine for having multiple ranches. Jamie Patron had uh, literally properties throughout New England. And um, it's a long-winded way of saying many of the behavioral aspects you've raised uh, for fraud anomalies
1: are hiding in plain sight yeah yeah it's true and I, it's funny you, the, the Reeder Cronwell case is one I actually use when I go out and I talk about behavioral red flags because you know for for listeners who might not be aware she was she was a, a city manager she was making 80000 dollars a year um, she had four homes just in her county she had a ranch in another state she had a vacation home in another state she had 400 quarter horses. She, when they sold all her stuff, you know, when they finally caught the fraud and seized it and sold it, it was millions of dollars of stuff on an $80,000 salary. And you ask yourself, how did these people, and at the same time she was doing it, she was the city manager for for the small town. The city was going broke, right? And she was the only one who controlled the money. And you ask yourself, how is it possible that these people did not draw the connection between our city's broke. She's the only person who controls the money, and she's living like a Kardashian, right? Like, how is that possible? And I think to those of us who are in the audit or the anti-fraud space, it seems so obvious because we're trained to be skeptical. But I don't think those people in, in that town were, were dumb, or they were just uninformed. And this gets back to what I talk about, about educating people it's really hard for people to believe—frauds are breaches of trust, right? All frauds are breaches of trust. Rita Cronwell was friends with the people that she that worked with at the city she lived around, and she was stealing from them. And it's hard to believe your friend, someone you trust, somebody you've known for years is stealing from you. You will believe another explanation even if it doesn't make sense. And that's why it's so important to educate people that anyone can commit fraud, that it's not it's not like— the new guy you've never never met is probably the person you've worked with for 10 years. We have some data in the report that the longer a person works at your organization, the more they steal because they get better at it. It's like a skill. If the people of Dixon, which is was Rita's hometown, if they had been given some training about what behavioral frauds look, or behavioral red flags look like about living beyond means, somebody probably would have— asked questions long before the fraud eventually came to light. That scheme ran for 22 years, right? It nearly bankrupt the city and it was completely obvious, but it's only obvious, it's only common sense if you've been taught what to look for, right? So that gets back to the point of educating your staff, educating your managers, know what these clues look like um, because those are not isolated cases. I mean, they're the extreme example But you see case after case after case where people are living extravagantly or or exhibiting other, you know, signs of fraud. And it seems like it should be obvious, but nobody notices it. Right. It's our job to make people notice it.
0: John, in the uh, behavioral some of the behavioral um, uh, information you listed, or at least uh, components, you had a part that I don't know if it was new or I just hadn't seen it before. But it really struck me as a great fraud prevention tool. Once again, not real rocket science because it's background checks. Yeah, And uh, that's something that um, I wanted to ask you about. Is is that something that you see, frankly, enough of? Uh, if I went to a company, they'd probably do a criminal background check, maybe make me go down and take a drug test, and that's probably it. But why do you really advocate uh, background checks as a key prevention tool.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because some of the data in the report can be a little uh, confusing on this, right? So only 57% of the organizations in our study did a background check at all, and that's too low, right? Um, Because what a background check hopefully can do is help you weed out the problem person before they get in the door. The The other part of it, though, which is really disappointing is that when we did look at the people who got caught in these cases, only um, 6% of those people had a prior uh, criminal conviction for fraud, right? So 94% had clean records. Now, part of, but there's there's context for that, right? Part of the reason is because the organizations that did their background checks didn't let those people in in the first place, right? So even though 6% sounds low, it's kind of, disappointing that there were that many people with criminal records who were being given access to money in the first place, right? So the background check helps you weed out the people in advance who were your obvious fraudsters. But the problem with fraud is um, most people who commit occupational fraud are first-time offenders or at least don't have a record. And one of the disappointing reasons that occurs is because when organizations catch somebody, they very often don't report it. So you'll have somebody who steals from company A, gets caught. Company A doesn't want to publicize it because they don't want to go through the trouble of of, uh, or the bad publicity involved with like admitting they've been defrauded or they just want to move on or whatever. So that perpetrator leaves, has no criminal record, goes to the next company and goes in. that company, even if they do a background check, is unaware because nobody reported the first one and then they do it again. So I do think background checks are really important. But I think as a systematic problem, we've got an issue with companies not reporting these things enough. Because if you really want background checks to be effective, everybody's got to report the fraud when they catch it so that you're helping the next company down the line avoid the same problem that you had. And that's an issue.
0: Always worked in the energy industry being uh, uh, up until recently in Houston. And In the first decade of this uh, century, I was in-house at a large uh, OFL service company, and we began to get requests from large customers for our key, we were contractors, for our key personnel to provide their social security numbers so credit checks could be um, run on them. And the general theory being, well, if someone's got bad credit, they may have additional pressures and that may lead them to uh, commit a fraud. These were universally hated by the employees, but they were less – there was some concern about the release of financial information, but they were much more concerned about passing their Social Security number to another organization. They realized they had to give it to their employer because you have to have a uh, – reported for your income tax purposes, and that requirement seemed to, to just kind of fall by the wayside. But I was wondering, it was is that a valid strategy – and if it is, is there a way to do that without asking for Amer- an American's most sensitive piece of information, which is our social security number?
1: If you know that's a that's a real issue, and if that is if there is a good way to do it, I can tell you, um, we still struggle with it as an organization. And I'm not even talking about in the fraud detection. I mean, ACFE itself, when we deal with um, more and more organizations, are implementing really strict KYC, like know your customer onboarding requirements and they can be kind of intrusive, right? There are questions about social security numbers, passport numbers, especially if you're dealing with overseas organizations. And it's become kind of a cost to doing business that if you want to contract with certain organizations, you have to give that up. Um, I'm sure there are maybe some ways around it in some situations, but we haven't found good ways around it. It's a balance though, because the reason those companies are doing that is because KYC processes are effective. So there's always this tension between personal privacy, preventing fraud, preventing crime, preventing the the kinds of losses that we're talking about. There, right? The reason banks, you know, implemented KYC stuff, which is largely now being like, you know, copied by other industries, was to prevent money laundering and, and you know and trafficking and really, really bad crimes. So, you know, I don't know what the solution is, but I we generally come down in favor of strong background checks, um, strong compliance measures, which means understanding who you're doing business with. But I agree that the, the turning over of really sensitive personal information is, is difficult. And particularly in light of in Europe, uh, with the GDPR, there's much stronger um, restrictions on dealing with people's uh, private information. And now you're seeing that in, in US states, in California and Virginia and Colorado, where there's an obligation on the companies that take that information in to safeguard it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a difficult question.
0: Well, John, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. But uh, I wanted, before we end, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information. On the topics we've touched on, or to get a copy of the 2022 report to the nations, how would they do so?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. Go to our website. It is acfe.com, that's Association of Certified Product Examiner's.com, slash RTTN for report to the nation. So, acfe.com, slash RTTN. The report, I want to emphasize, it is a free resource. We put it out as a public service. You can Print it out, you can download it, you can email it to your friends, you can send it to your managers and your clients. You can take, we've got charts up there, you can take the charts and put them in slides. What we're really trying to accomplish with this report is to raise awareness about the risk of fraud and make it easier for anti fraud professionals to do their job. So use that data, use those charts, and I will also say if you have questions about something in there, you're not sure how to interpret something shoot us an email, memberservices@acfe.com, and we will respond. We love to talk about this. We're kind of fraud nerds. And so we love it when somebody calls and has a question, wants to know how we calculated X or, or how we got to Y or whatever. We're happy to answer questions. So, yeah, reach out anytime.
0: And I'm just going to uh, emphasize that by saying ditto, ditto. Um, for the non-fraud Compliance practitioner listening to this, this report is invaluable for any other type of compliance. I don't care what it is, ABC, AML, KYC, export control, sanctions, terrorist financing. There's lots of insights about how the bad guys get away with things inside of a corporation. And so as a non-certified fraud examiner, I find this report literally invaluable for the people I talk to as well, but it's a great resource. John's absolutely right. Uh, One, it's free. Two, it is a huge amount of information that you need to be aware of no matter where you sit in your organization. So, John, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. And uh, as you can
1: tell, I love geeking out with other geeks. So perhaps we can do it again. Yeah. Anytime, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Claire's got a ton of resources on her website, and we're going to link to all of those in the show notes. So check them out if you're interested in internal audit, data visualization, or any of the topics we've touched upon today. I hope you'll check out my latest podcast series, The Woody Report, which is a podcast with Karen Woody, well-known securities law professional and securities law professor. I hope you'll check out some of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're coming out with new podcasts literally a couple of times a month, so check that out. In addition to Karen's new podcast, I have another podcast entitled "Tax Man" on the intersection of tax and compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.